Well, happy Easter, everyone. If you would, um, open up your Bibles. There's one in front of you, or you can just look along in your bulletin. We're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26. And Derek Prime, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, wrote these uh, important words. He says, Chapters in the Bible do not compete for importance. But no chapter is more important than 1 Corinthians 15. Next week, we are going to look at the second half of 1 Corinthians 15. What we talk about here today may want you to read ahead. But today, we're going to focus on the first half. And the first half, if it has its way with you, will back you into a corner and it will demand a response of you. What will you say to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Will you reject it as myth or madness? Or will you receive it and stand upon it and hold fast to it as your very life and death depend upon it? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 26. Follow along. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. 
for he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word given to us. Um, holy scriptures, true and right. We pray that we would sit under them in humility, that we would learn, that we would delight, that we'd be transformed, that your Holy Spirit would have his way with your people, we pray. Amen. Do you want your mind to be uploaded to a computer? Do you want to live forever, not in a physical fleshly body, but in a machine like a robot? Google is betting that you will. One of Google's companies is working to give you eternal life. Well, at least another 500 years. (laughs) By moving your mind from within your body into a machine. One of Google's key Scientist on the project is none other than Ray Kurzweil. You're probably familiar with him. He's a famous inventor, scientist, futurist. He's written a book on it. And he believes that this will all be possible by the year 2045. If given the chance to live forever, would you put your consciousness into a machine? And before you're so quick to say no, let me give you a a, a scene to picture. It's in the future. You're, you're on your deathbed. You're surrounded by your children and your grandchildren. And a scientist enters in and she says, if you would but digitally sign this waiver, we can have your consciousness transferred immediately. What would you do? You have no other hope to live on. All options are gone. Press your thumbprint here and you can live forever upon this earth in a mechanical body or reject this offer and soon pass away. Picture yourself there. Honestly, what would you do? Thankfully, there's good news for us this morning. God has done something about death. There is a far greater hope offered to us by our creator. The one who made you says, if you would but trust in the work of my son, your future death will be but like a sleep. Did you notice that in our passage a couple times? Paul refers to Christians who have died as, as sleeping. And at the end of the passage, Paul tells us that there's a day to come when, when the risen Christ puts an end to all that is wrong with this world and recreates it in an eternal perfection. And then all who are sleeping in Christ will, will rise into marvelous, glory, glorious bodies. Uh, come next week if you want to learn about that. And, and dwell on a perfect recreated uh, world. Now, on that day to come, our last verse says this. Listen, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, if that were to be true. In Christ it is. How does this sound to you? Do you see death as the great enemy that needs to be destroyed? No one likes to talk about their own mortality. Psychologists have a word for it. It's called psychological... Um, repression. I know that's two words, but anyway, psychological repression. We push distasteful thoughts into our subconscious, hoping that they will just go away and we can live without them. 
But through Christ, we no longer need to be haunted by death. We no longer need to repress our mortality. We no longer need to place our hope in machines. You know, this church in Corinth to which Paul was writing, they struggled with understanding uh, the resurrection of Christ and what it meant for them. I think maybe we do too as well, which is why I'm thankful we have this in Scripture. Paul helps us to see this important truth. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we must attach our hope to the resurrection of Christ. We're going to look at three different areas um, this morning. Each, Each paragraph covers one of them. First, we're going to see because we can trust that it happened. Then, because life is futile without it. And third, because it brings about God's great plan of fixing the world, we must attach our hope to the resurrection of Christ. First, because we can trust that it happened, we must attach our hope to the resurrection of Christ. You know, Christianity rises or falls on one thing, whether or not Christ rose from the dead. Now, skeptics argue that the resurrection never happened and therefore it's irrelevant. The Christian argues that the resurrection did happen and it's of of utmost relevance. Who is right? I became a Christian when I was 29. Prior to that, I was quite the skeptic. Um, Before then, I believed that science actually disproved Christianity because science disproves miracles. But I've come to realize that, with many others, that science, as wonderful and as helpful as it is, isn't designed to see miracles. Science is helpful for seeing repeated phenomenon. But miracles, by their nature, are not repeatable phenomenon. So science is the wrong tool to verify miracles. What is the proper tool for verifying miracles? It's eyewitness testimony. And you and I live by eyewitness testimony every day of our lives. If you were hit by a car riding your bike out here on the East End, which which has happened to me a few too many times. Yes, Mom, I am safe. I wear a helmet. But guess what? Science most likely will not help you unless they're trying to determine the length of the skid mark, right, with a ruler. But you um, you see, your accident is not a repeatable event. But you hope that there were eyewitnesses who saw the vehicle and wrote down that license plate as it sped away. In many cases like this, are we not thankful for eyewitness testimony? We live by it. And so if God has decided in his own wisdom to lay aside his own laws that he created to govern the universe and send his son so that he could rise uh, over death, which is a miracle, it's not repeatable, and therefore it's not scientifically provable, then eyewitness testimony is what will tell us whether it happened or not. And Paul shows us that there's a lot of eyewitness testimony. Look at verse 3 through 4. Here, Paul presents the core truths of the gospel First, Christ died for our sins. My friends, we cannot wipe our sin under the rug. It must be dealt with. Paul says Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And then in beginning in verse 5, Paul tells us that, that the risen Christ was seen by all kinds of people. Who saw the resurrected Savior? Well, in verse 5 we read, he appeared to Cephas. That's just another name for the apostle uh, Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve, that would be the rest of the disciples. And in verse 6, Paul writes, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to Jesus' half-brother James, uh, who was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And then he appeared to all the apostles, including Paul. Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul is saying, Corinthians, Jesus rose from the dead. We have all of these witnesses, 501 times. Oh, by the way, uh, most all of them are still alive. And I know it might be a long journey to Jerusalem. I think it's 1,200 kilometers. And you might need to take a boat. But I mean, if you're really skeptical, you can go there and walk around and ask around. And you're going to find not just one, two, or three, but many people who are witnesses who can say, yes, I saw him risen from the dead. I know it sounds hard to believe, but he's risen from the dead. Jewish law required the eyewitness testimony of two or three people before a person could be declared guilty or innocent. The resurrection of Christ, we have over 200 times that burden or requirement as witnesses. And so here's where we moderns need to be challenged. We suffer from an elitism. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. (laughs) He had a way with words. We moderns consider ourselves wise, and those people way back then, oh, they're so ignorant and gullible. They would be quick to believe in things like resurrections, you know, but we modern people, we're not fooled by all of that. My friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody in the Greco-Roman world believed that things that were alive and now dead could be resurrected back to life. They were surrounded by death every day. They never saw uh, a plant or an animal or a person rise from the dead. And the people in Corinth, they they had the same Greco-Roman mindset. There is no such thing as a resurrection. They were huge skeptics. So you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, I get your doubts. I know you're skeptical. He says, I too was skeptical. I used to persecute the church. But he's saying, do this. Sift through the evidence. The evidence concludes that that Jesus is risen from the grave, just like he said he would. Now, perhaps some of you here today are a bit skeptical. You know, that's okay, as long as you have the right kind of skepticism. I think we all have that friend that when you enter in an argument with him him or her, and uh, and even when you present really solid evidence, um, and they say they're really (laughs) open-minded, but they never change their position on anything. Do you have a friend like that? Or maybe that's you. I don't know. Um, if that's the type of skepticism that you have concerning the resurrection of Christ, know this, you will never believe. Yet you're determined not to believe. But if you have an inquisitive skepticism, you doubt, but you're willing to weigh the evidence then investigate and cooperate with the evidence. The evidence points to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Now you've got to deal with that evidence. If you'd like to study this in further detail, can't go into a whole lot of it, but um, Tim Keller has a great book, The Reason for God. It's on our book table. Chapter 13 is the one you want to turn to. But before you say no, remember Thomas, that disciple, who doubted that Jesus rose from the dead because he wasn't there when, he, when Jesus rose the first time the, the disciples saw him. But then when he saw Jesus in the flesh, he believed. And remember what, what Jesus said to him? Um, it was read earlier. Jesus said, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Guess what? That's you and me. I think he said those words for us. 
Jesus expects you to not see him resurrected and yet still be able to believe in him. The question is, do you believe that he rose? Better yet, have you staked your life, even better, your death, on the resurrection of Christ? So first, we are to trust that the resurrection happened. But now let's see that because life is futile without it, we must attach our hope to the resurrection of Christ. You know, all of life is about consequences, right? Consequences are a daily part of our life. If we decide to stay up late, binge-watching, who knows what, we're probably going to be tired the next morning, maybe a little grumpy, right? Everything has consequences. In verses 12 through 19, Paul lays out the consequences if there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Understand, they weren't believing this, right? Influential members of the church in Corinth were saying, there is no such thing as resurrection of the dead. So Paul wants his readers to know the consequences if there is no resurrection of the dead. I'll run through them quickly. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then, consequence, not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if you insist that there will be no such thing as dead in Christ, Christians rising someday, then Christ himself hasn't been raised. Verse 14, and if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And guess what? Your faith is in vain. All of Paul's teaching, all of it is in vain. Why? Because the good news, the gospel, centers on a risen Savior. The whole of Christian faith rises or falls upon the empty tomb. Think about it. There is no Christianity without the resurrection of Christ. All other world religions can have founders that are dead, right? Buddha, dead. Muhammad, dead. Joseph Smith of Mormonism, dead. See, all the world's religions can exist without their founders still being alive. Why is this? Because the world's religions, except for Christianity, are all about the teachings and not about the teacher. But Christianity isn't so much about the the teachings that needed to be followed, except that they point you to Christ. It's about God coming in the flesh to live for you, to die for you, to rise for you, so that by trusting in him, you will be forgiven and restored back into a relationship with God and brought into God's kingdom and given the promise of that age to come. So for Christ to be your ongoing savior and shepherd and king, he must still be alive, and he is. Verse 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's a great word. And you are still in your sins. In verse 18, Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He's saying, if there, if there is no resurrection, then all who have died, they're really not forgiven. It didn't work, right? They're still, they're, they've perished for all eternity. Wow. Talk about consequences. Christ has to be raised from the dead Otherwise, we are all toast. The last consequence is seen in verse 19, and it makes logical sense. Look at that. It says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if the secular humanists are right and there is no life after death, then the Christians are the most pitiful people on earth. Why? 
Because though we love this world like God loves this world, we place our greater hope in the age to come when God will renew and restore this world. And so the Christians are actually the most laughable people if there is no resurrection. We've been living a lie. The the Epicureans were right. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Get the most out of this life because it's all you've got. And let's be honest, isn't that how most people live? Perhaps even you. Life is all about me and my family enjoying all that we can get now. Well, of course, and being nice people along the way. Much of the world lives with its only hope being in this life only. Now, Paul is making an argument. He's saying, actually, these consequences, they aren't true. Why? Because Christ is risen. So the gospel that he preaches isn't in vain. Our faith isn't in vain. Our faith isn't futile. Nor are we separated from God by our sin. And so it isn't the Christian who's to be pitied. It's those who place their greatest hope in this life only who are to be pitied. For as good as life can be in this broken world, and it can be good, I'm not discounting that, it will all one day come to an end. If your motto is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, then one day you will die. Benjamin Franklin once put it, in this world nothing can be said for certain except death and taxes. Oh, and by the way, your taxes are due tomorrow. (laughs) I can't help you with your taxes. But I can point you to Christ, who can help you with your death to come. So we've seen that we're to trust that the resurrection happened, and also that life is futile without it. Now let's see that because it brings about God's great plan of fixing this world, we must attach our hope to the resurrection of Christ. Now, a couple weeks ago, I was in Haiti, and um, John Yanchko and I were we're teaching some uh, Bible pastoral candidates at a Bible college in Port-au-Prince. And one thing we kept driving home was how the Bible really is just one big, giant story. We see this big story in verses 20 through 26. Just let me summarize. God's big story begins with a good creation, but it becomes corrupted by the fall of Adam. But God in love pledges to redeem and restore mankind and his creation through a second Adam, his son, Jesus Christ. And where the first Adam failed to live in goodness and faithfulness to his creator, the second Adam, God himself, um, Jesus Christ, lived with, with perfection. Whereas the first Adam brought sin and death into the world, the second Adam brought, brought forgiveness and new life. We see this in verses 21 and 22. Look there. For as by a man came death, So by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, listen. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Which begs the question for you. Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? 
Everyone born into this world is born a son or daughter of Adam, born to sin, destined to die. It's only by faith in Christ that you become one who is forgiven and reborn into the family of God, reborn in Christ. So are you in Adam or are you in Christ? The big story of the Bible continues with the promise that there will be a day to come when this broken world will once and for all uh, be redeemed and renewed. Verse 23 says, it says, Christ will come again. He will come again. And then it states in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule that is every, everything evil, uh, every authority and every power that is contrary to God's goodness. Until then, Jesus, the risen Lord, is sitting on his throne. He's resurrected. He's, a, he's in, in heaven awaiting that day when he delivers the kingdom to his father. And finally, the last enemy will be destroyed. And, and that enemy is what? Death itself. Your greatest enemy, death itself, is destroyed through Jesus Christ. And it will one day come to a final end where there will be no more death. Do you long for that? So we must come to see that the death and resurrection of Christ are central to God's big plan to fix this world of all the evil and the corruption and the death. On December 8th, 2008, a horrific hurricane, actually it's a cyclone, it's in the southern hemisphere, um, struck the nation of Burma. Its name, Cyclone Nargis. You probably don't know anything about it. I really didn't. Most of the world didn't know anything about it. Why? Because Burma had recently been overthrown by generals who ruled the nation with cruel tyranny. You know, over, recently in Haiti, over 800 people lost their lives in Hurricane Matthew. Katrina was over 1,800 people. How many people lost their lives the Cyclone Nargis? It's mind-blowing. 360,000 people perished. 1.5 million people homeless. If it wasn't for Emma Larkin and a few people like her, little would be known of Cyclone Nargis and the Burmese government's response. Larkin recounts her events in her book, Everything is Broken, a tale of catastrophe in Burma. She was there on the ground in the aftermath. She saw the horror of it all. Amazingly, this totalitarian regime refused any foreign aid. As rows of bodies piled along the paddy fields, disease ran through the countryside. Ships laden with food were turned back. Airplanes with medicine disallowed to land. The official newspaper published zero disaster pictures. The, the national statistics reported none of the deaths from the storm, but did not hesitate to report the total number of chickens lost to disease that year. The propaganda was a fiction of a land in control with its leadership steady, guiding the country through a mere thunderstorm. 
Are there not powers and authorities that Jesus needs to overthrow in this world? Larkin recounts a startling scene. It's of a little girl sitting in a coconut tree. Her name is Apoe Ong. She jumped out of the, of the window of her family shack just as it floated away in the waves, taking her entire family with it. The next day, she was found completely naked up a tree, a coconut tree. Survivors beckoned her to come down and live, but she refused. She was ashamed. She was like Eve in the Garden of Eden, hiding herself from her only source of survival. Her only route of escape was blocked by an inherent evil. The shame brought about by being naked. She would not descend until the next night when she was clothed in darkness. A camera crew recorded the rescue that night. And as the camera was recording, it panned over into the darkness and found, stuck in the mud, a small statue of a smiling Buddha. Emma Larkin wrote, summing it up, she she finished by asking, Where is the God that will swallow up this horror? Where is the God that will swallow up even death itself? You've had those questions too, haven't you? Where is the God? If if he exists, what will he do? Will he not swallow up the horrors of this world? Next week, we look at the second half of chapter 15. Um, There, we're going to read these words. They're amazing words from verses 54 and 55. Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, and he says that in Christ, something wonderful has come true. Listen. Here's what we read. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The one true God is not indifferent like Buddha. How do we know that? The cross. Where the smiling Buddha sat in the mud, indifferent to the plights of this world, the Son of God entered into the suffering of this world. And so if you're here this morning and you struggle with the age-old question of where are you, God? Do you not see the brokenness of this world? Do you not care? Can you not swallow up this horror? God's answer is the cross and the empty tomb. The cross of Jesus Christ, God's eternal son, tells us that God is not indifferent to our suffering. In fact, he willingly enters into it. Jesus left glory in heaven to walk upon this glorious yet broken, sin-filled world. He came and he died a death he did not deserve so that those who trust in him can truly be redeemed of their sin and enter into this kingdom of God. My friends, God has done this. And the resurrection guarantees that God will one day bring this world to an end and recreate it so that sin and corruption and death cannot have the final say over God's creation. And on that day, when all is remade, those who trust their death to Christ will rise to new life. God has a plan for fixing this world. The plan is almost complete. The first resurrection, it's in the books. 
Now we await Christ's return, which brings about the final resurrection. The cross and the empty tomb tell us that God has conquered sin and death through his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must place our ultimate hope in the resurrection of Christ. For if we do, his resurrection becomes the guarantee of our resurrection yet to come. You know, I hope this morning you've come to see that your greatest enemy isn't an unappreciative boss or wife or husband. Your greatest enemy isn't your anemic 401k plan or some evil outside of you. Your greatest enemy is death and the sin that leads you there. But I also hope that you see that God has done the miraculous. He's conquered sin and death. So back to my earlier question. On your deathbed, if given an opportunity to live inside a machine or instead trust in God's perfect plan of resurrection, what will you do? That day is coming. Will you take man's solution to the enemy of death? Or will you hope in God's solution, the resurrection of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you look down on this world um, not as one who is indifferent, but one who loves this creation. You're saddened by what has happened. But you're not just standing by watching. You've done something. You sent your son, and he is the first fruits of that which is to come. A resurrected world, resurrected people made in your image. We long for that day. We pray that we would rest on this, that we would grasp hold of this, that this would be the hope that guides us until that time we meet you face to face, we pray. Amen.